This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we've been doing, you know, a lot of hopefully learning on this podcast, right? I hope we're not the same people we were when it started. True. Yeah, no, I would like not to be the same person I was three years ago. <laughs> but we've had was a, it three years. Ah, it's been, we're getting there. We're almost this spring. We're coming up on three years. Yeah. I guess this is growing up. I know. I know. Yeah. What's the, in, in podcast years, we're walking and, and talking. I'm about. glad we got through our terrible twos because that's a very, uh, well, exhausting time. Well, I guess you could think of our guests as the ones who helped us get through those years, right? That's true. <laughs> Thank you very much for all your, all your help and hard work. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, and so we've, hopefully we've grown a lot. You know, we've, we've recorded 128 episodes already. This is the 129th episode. Oh my and, goodness. You know, one of the top the topics that I feel like has been the most helpful for me is learning about indigenous histories and cultures. Yeah. Uh, and you know, how we teach them in school and and that's been helpful, you know, cuz I I think I've talked about it on previous episodes. I'm from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, right? I'm from Cherokee Nation and then I the home of of two distinct Cherokee nations and the and I I moved to Tulsa at a young age and grew up in Oklahoma. And feel like I just wasn't educated. Like the system did not prepare me, both as a student to understand the nations and in, in you know the, right. the area, understand the histories. I mean, you got some of the broad views of Trail of Tears and things like this, but I feel like I didn't understand the histories, especially the the contemporary aspects of the legacies into the current day. And so I feel like I wasn't prepared to teach indigenous students or indigenous histories and cultures in any way as a teacher. So, which makes a lot of sense. I know that, so in episode 15, we had Sarah Shear talk about, she did a study where she looked at all the standards and what she found was that, yeah, we don't really spend too much time looking at indigenous peoples, looking at Native Americans, except like, I think the pilgrims gets a nod at whenever yeah. there's like, yeah, like the, the happy Indian, or if there's some sort of war or travesty. But only the Trail of Tears is the only thing that's really covered in any in any depth. So I imagine that, yeah, much of it is just glossed over, which makes sense that we don't really have a good founda- uh, foundation. And then an absence after like 1890, right? Like this right, kind because of what happened, I, they were, right. the, the West was settled. And right, right. They, right, and so it's, obviously there's, a, there's an issue. Right, and so the, the histories are just very Western and white-centric in kind of their tellings and... You know, and for young kids, this can start with, with, with younger kids, too. And when in episode 67, American Indians and Children's Literature with Debbie Reese, um, right. she helped us so much talk about a lot of the problems in children's picture books and a lot of the misunderstandings, which can often come from outsiders who are not part of that nation trying to write picture books about those nations. I, after our conversation, because she gave us also a list of like good books and I bought the Jingle Dancer for my daughter, and we read it every now and then. She's two now, and sometimes terrible. But she does enjoy the <laughs> book. That's where my terrible two-ness is. 
<laughs> and then in episode 95, I really appreciated we had Sarah Shear, Leilani Subzalian, and Lisa Brown Buchanan, who came on and talked about an elementary lesson they did. So to talk, start thinking right. about how we can teach indigenous sovereignty, which one is one of the core issues, right? That the United States historically made treaties with indigenous nations and those treaties, you know, are still uh, often in effect, even if the government has broken them or ignored them. Uh, and there's actually a big Supreme Court case even addressing that, um, an Oklahoma case that oh I think goodness. I think got pushed to the the next session um, to still be decided. Andrew, that's the episode we talked about when I went hot air ballooning, <laughs> and my hot air balloon. There was like it might have. There was a big discussion if it if what happens if it goes on to the. Uh, the indigenous uh, nation that's there and how much time it would take to get out because of the paperwork. But again, we really didn't, it was just an interesting experience. Well, and then interesting discussion while on the air. Absolutely. And, um, and then in episode 116, most recently indigenous counter stories on an elementary field trip with Harper Keenan, we discussed like how, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, field trips and museums and these spaces can, can center kind of Western, you know, white stories and colonial stories, and how in this case, the students, elementary students actually went and learned the, the, the story from an indigenous perspective. So it was kind of a colonial counter story. I liked how excited Harper was about those museum scholars. He was very, very excited about how they were telling the stories. And he was saying that, like, almost, you really can't reproduce it. You need uh, indigenous people telling indigenous stories instead mm-hmm. of like. You know, just, you know, the white folk talking about it. like you need people who have, you know, more experience and uh, who are rooted more in the culture. It was an interesting conversation. And I hope that people are able to, you know, to head out over there and to take a listen to the episode. And I think this for me, what this all comes back to is um, we have so many indigenous scholars and teachers and people doing such tremendous work. And it's kind of our responsibility as white teachers, right, too, to do a good job on this. Like, we need to listen and learn from them and do a good job in our own classrooms of teaching indigenous histories and cultures. And it takes some learning. I feel like I've learned, but, you know, I'm still I'm still growing. I am proud that at coming up at NCSS here soon, one of my students did a historical and contemporary indigenous lesson for Texas teachers that we're going to be doing. Yeah. The NCSS is in Austin this year. And so we're really hoping, but we've really, you know, she was so such a cool student. Her name is Amy Catrola and she's really everything I gave her. She was just wanted to learn, you know, she was just such a learner and I would say, read this and she would learn, look at it and then give me. And so we had this, it was really cool to have an undergraduate who's now in her first year teaching kind of put that together. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to put it into effect, but you know, there's still a lot to learn. It's also, it's humbling to realize how much you don't know and how much work that you, you need to do, you know? Uh, it is, it's humbling. <laughs> it is, it is. But you know, it's, I think hopefully what we're doing, hopefully what other do, people are doing are committing to continuing to learn and committing to the process, you know? That's because you got to do, I mean, our podcast is great and listen to all of our episodes, but also then go and we have some great resources mm-hmm. in those episodes, but don't just, you know, take a look at our show notes, do some research, like reach out, talk to people, learn, read books. Yes. So we're going to continue that discussion right here, and we're actually bringing out right now. That, right now, we're bringing back in one of the guests from episode ninety-five to talk about the incredible array of work that she's been doing. And so we would like to welcome back into the podcast Leilani Subzalian. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me again. 
Um, it's are, such an honor to be on the show and to also be in conversation with so many of the folks that you listed before, you know, Dr. Debbie Reese and Harper Keenan and many of, you know, I, I draw upon their work. So I'm really grateful to be here and grateful for the space that you all have provided to support educators in thinking about Indigenous studies and Indigenous issues. Well, just as, just as important, you're now a friend of the pod. That's what we call the, two, the second our second time guests. Yes. And so we, I think we got a little bit about your background um, on previously on episode 95, but if you could tell us and remind listeners a little bit about who is Dr. Leilani Subzalian. Sure. I'd be happy to. So I am a Lutic. I am an assistant professor of indigenous studies and education at the University of Oregon. So I teach here in the College of Education. I teach an elementary social studies methods class. Uh, I teach an educational foundations class. And I'm also the co-director of our, our Subsequatla Indigenous Teacher Education Program. That's a program operated through an Office of Indian Education federal grant that's um, designed to, to prepare Indigenous teachers to serve in Indigenous schools. And it really supports that mission that Harper Keenan had shared in their article on the museum, those native museum educators, right? We need to really create pathways for more indigenous educators to be teaching their own perspectives, to be teaching indigenous education. So we have a lot of social studies, you know, folks that listen to this podcast, both teacher educators and teachers. Since you teach social studies methods, I'm curious, can you tell us like what what advice do you have them kind of from from your own perspective and whatever way you want to share? Like what what's your advice for social studies methods? How do you approach it? That's a big question. I am in my third year, so I very much consider myself a learner just as you had considered yourself. So I'm always learning from your podcasts in particular about how to think mm -hmm. about my methods courses. One thing that's helpful for me is to think about who am I centering in my, in my own course as a college instructor, instructor, but then also who are, you know, using that as a prompt for social studies teachers in the elementary social studies course, for example, who are you centering? in your education. So oftentimes teachers will get nervous about, you know, possibly teaching social justice related content, you know, about teaching Black Lives Matter or about teaching about Indigenous People's Day instead of Columbus. And so I often prompt them to ask themselves, who are you centering in that fear? You know, which parents are you centering? Which students are you centering? Because you know, it might be very affirming for a Black student to learn about Black Lives Matter. Never mind that all students need to learn about it. And I know as, as a Native parent that I would love for my teachers to teach about Indigenous Peoples Day. I would love for that kind of knowledge and those issues to be discussed, not only from me. Because when it only comes from me, it's like, oh, come on, Mom. We know about that. You know, my kids are like, stop it already. But when that, that knowledge comes from a teacher, it's affirming in a different kind of way. Because teachers have a lot of power in my children's life. My children love and look up to their teachers. You know, yesterday we organized a big Indigenous People's Day event at the city of Springfield and the city for the first time in its history raised flags of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Sluts Indians. Um, it was, and they passed an Indigenous People's Day proclamation, which took us three years, I think, to pass. Um, I would love for my, my, 
kids to learn from teachers that that type of event was happening in our city, you know, but they don't typically learn that in schools. Mm -hmm. They learn that from me. I think that's tremendous advice. I know I often talk to my students. I always ask the question, whose stories, right? And who are we protecting when we say we're trying to like not expose kids to certain things and we're, we're protecting certain kids and not other kids. And I don't even know that we're actually protecting anyone. Um, is kind of what I end up getting to. But yeah, it's really, you know, uh, the one of my students recently came to me and said that her teacher was going to, this is like she just got in the field, right? Had no experience and her teacher said she was going to let her teach a lesson. Um, and she was like, great. And it was like, what was it on? It was like, well, the colonies. It's like, what about the colonies? I was like, great, we can talk about colonization. So me and her sat down for like two hours and we thought about how do we center indigenous perspectives to think of colonization. And we instead, and so they had all these terrible resources, this newsletter they were given that was very Western centric, literally said U.S. history 1565 to present, which like we just, so then we spent an hour in my methods class talking about which oh, wow. years you could start U.S. history at and why mm -hmm. 1565 was literally like the first European settlement, like why that was problematic. And it was cool. She came up with a lesson on the Lenape. And we really told the Lenape story and how colonization influenced them. And we just told what colonization was. And we didn't talk at all about the colonists at all. We just talked about the Lenape and we talked, we showed some um, what their traditions are today and where they are today. And we, that was the whole thing. And then I was like, well, if they wanted to still do the col colonial stuff, you can then counter it with what we already did. And it was really cool to see her take that up. And so, and I think, you know, she was in a very conservative district that you may have thought. And she said the students loved it and her teacher like loved it. They, you know, and so you can do this work. And so it was really cool to see that happening. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's, that is really great. And that's another theme I try to touch on in my methods class is you're not going out the first year, the second year, the third year to change everything, but there are really small shifts in practice that you can make that, make a big difference. And that's how that framework for anti-colonial civic education that's in the TRSE article came out, was trying to help teachers who in, aren't in states with Indigenous Studies curriculum initiatives, for example, or who don't have a comprehensive knowledge, how they can slowly start to incorporate Indigenous perspectives or focus on the place that they live as Indigenous homelands or shift the discussion from Native cultures to Native nations, right? Small changes that can make a difference. So as you brought it up, um, you've recently, again, been published by uh, Theory and Research and Social Education. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, the article is entitled, The Tensions Between Indigenous Sovereignty and Multicultural Citizenship Education Towards an Anti-Colonial Approach to Civic Education. Now, do you mind just telling us a little bit more about your research and then we can get into the frameworks that you developed? Sure. The big idea I was thinking about was how indigenous citizenship and indigenous nationhood and indigenous sovereignty can really com complicate and challenge and enhance civic and citizenship education. So I had been looking into the literature on citizenship education and found a lot of really promising practices and theories that were rooted in a respect for difference, in particular cultural difference, right? And this was really a departure from prior forms of citizenship education that were rooted in assimilation, right? And Americanizing everyone. So these practices were really promising to me, but a, a trend within the literature was that they ignored indigenous citizenship and indigenous nationhood and indigenous sovereignty. So while they were attending to the cultural differences of Native people, they weren't looking at the political differences. That is, Native people's political identities as citizens or descendants of Native nations. 
So I'm trying to think about how citizenship education can really foster Native students' civic identities as citizens of their own nation and what civic responsibility to their tribal nations would look like, and then how citizenship education can support all students in thinking about what it means to be a good citizen, but in ways that work on countering colonialism and that work on respecting and affirming tribal sovereignty. That's really incredible work. So we, you talked a little bit about how just the very notion of, of indigenous sovereignty and nationhood really is a challenge to civic education. Is that because like the social studies have just centered narratives of Eurocentricity and whiteness through that, that subsume, you know, indigenous histories is, does that help to explain why we're having to now use this to confront it? Absolutely. And part of that is shown in earlier when you were referencing, you know, that the West had, has been settled, right? How that message has been taught in history education, that message that the West has been settled, that it's been won, that colonization is over and finished business. That discourse is really deeply entrenched in citizenship education. And you see this when you look at how citizenship education frames words like citizen and nation. So there's not space often in those words for people to be thinking about indigenous citizenship and indigenous nationhood. Instead, they're using the nation state as the normative frame through which to discuss citizenship and nationhood. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem because Native students don't see their own citizen identities as important. They don't see their own nations as having a status, as being recognized as you know, deserving of rights. And so it's really a powerful discourse in citizenship education that really undermines, or I, I've found the word disavowal really helpful. That dis, The way citizenship education disavows Native nationhood by either ignoring it or subsuming Native people as cultures. And disavow means that you kind of deny the rights and the relationships and even responsibility to indigenous nationhoods. So by continually talking about the nation state, right, we could, we've heard white supremacy, we could think of nation state supremacy. By continually thinking about the, the nation state as the anchor around which we discuss citizenship, we're erasing um, the nearly 600 nations in what's now called the United States. And indigenous studies scholars are really helpful in thinking through this. So I don't actually think that anything in this article is is new. I'm just bringing indigenous studies scholars like Sandy Grande, like Dolores Calderon, like Jeanette Haynes writer into conversation with citizenship education because they have long said that democracy is rooted in colonialism, even though it purports to be just, right? And they are the ones who help remind me that not everybody wants to be included in, into the nation state. So the, the growing body of literature, for example, that has sought to foster more diverse and plural conceptions of citizenship, they're all rooted in these ideas that people have been excluded as citizens. And so because they were structurally excluded, they should now be structurally included. But indigenous studies complicates that notion because they say, look, our goal isn't always to be included into the nation state. In fact, the nation state is what has oppressed our communities, our nations for so long. So our goal is actually to maintain our um, a measured separateness, right? We maintain our sovereignty as 
indigenous nations and we want to have a relationship, but including us in that way sometimes has been just a broader part of the assimilative project. It seems like that often happens too around like this American identity, right? This kind of imagined American identity and the states. I mean, the thing that I know I've I probably learned from, again, so many of our amazing scholars to pick up on is just this notion of of first first Americans and first Texans and first Nebraskans where we mm-hmm. just subsume indigenous nations underneath this identity which was often colonial. I mean, it's like, and often it's completely ahistorical. I always talk about like our textbooks that say first Texans about people who never knew the word Texas, you know, as, Mm -hmm. as a state nation state, of course, Texas comes from an indigenous word, but that they never would have known it during their entire lifetimes. Yet we call them first Texans and how colonial Mm -hmm. that is. And it just, Mm -hmm. it it really bothers me, but my (laughs) students do struggle with, how to frame it because it takes it takes some real learning. Mm-hmm. I I find this there's this quote from Dale Turner that's really helpful for me, and he says that identifying as Cherokee or Haida is not just a word choice, and it's not just a cultural identity, but it's a way to privilege one nationality over the other. So it places the U.S. identity as a secondary category. It's your tribal nation that's first. Right. And so thinking in terms of nationhood like that, right, that these identities that people say when they say they're Cherokee, they're not just talking about a cultural affiliation. They're talking about a tribal or a national affiliation. They are identifying as citizens of a nation. And that's a big pivot for teachers to think about, because multiculturalism Mm -hmm. really it it it's rooted in respect for cultural difference. But it often erases the political difference Mm -hmm. of indigenous citizens and nations who who don't want to be absorbed in that framework, who don't want to be understood in that framework. So I know that you have some frameworks from the article. Do you mind talking a little bit about the frameworks and, and how to do it better? Sure. So I should start off by saying that this framework, I hope, is seen in conversation with efforts to work on kind of bigger and more comprehensive initiatives. So, for example, I think we should have more Indigenous educators. And so social studies educators or social studies teacher educators should be thinking about how can we create more pathways for native teachers in our programs. And then I also think we need statewide indigenous studies mandates. So I am encouraging people to think how can we be a part of these bigger initiatives. So this I don't want what I'm talking about in the classroom to be divorced from that kind of those broader initiatives. But at the same time, teachers need support in the everyday ways that they're thinking about, including indigenous peoples or indigenous issues or perspectives. So I've come up with this framework of the six Ps, which are place, presence, perspectives, political nationhood, power, and partnerships. And each of these is a way to help kind of ground the ways that a social studies teacher might include or talk about or teach about indigenous peoples or issues. So, for example, the first one place is the reminder that we are always, wherever we are, on Indigenous homelands, whether those lands were ceded by force or through treaty, whether they remain unceded and contested territory. And so that, as an anchor, is intended to guide teachers in thinking about how do we not just teach about, so, for example, here in Oregon, people teach a lot about the Plains Indians, and we're not in the Dakotas, right? We're not that's not as relevant for us here. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't include Plains authors. It doesn't mean we shouldn't include Plains people in our curriculum, but that 
shouldn't be the only reference. We should te teach about Oregon as indigenous land. So here that means teaching about the nine federally recognized tribal nations or the people who have historic ties to what is now called Oregon. And place is a really good anchor too because what does it mean to think about a, a place-based politics, right? What does it mean to think about civic education, civic responsibility in relationship to the nations that are near your community? So for that reason, when we did the Indigenous Peoples Day at our, our city hall, we invited two of the tribal nations because they have historic ties to this area to fly their flags, right? We didn't just invite anybody. We tried to have a relationship with people who consider these their homelands. I find this whole way of framing this really, really helpful to build on kind of what we've been learning. So tell us about presence. How do you, how do you frame that? Yeah, so, you know, given Dr. Shear's standard study with her colleagues that you all cited earlier, the fact that nearly 90% of the standards in history focus on Native people pre-1900, presence is an important counter to that pattern of erasure. So presence means, you know, there's 573 Native nations in the U.S. and counting, and that doesn't even include the many more that are fighting for recognition. There's nearly 6 million people who identify as American Indian or Alaska Native. So there's a very strong presence of Indigenous people. So how do educators use that as an orientation and curriculum? That means teaching about contemporary Indigenous leaders, change makers, artists, athletes, politicians. It means teaching about contemporary issues that Indigenous peoples are continuing to struggle with and fight through today. Like I hope every social studies teacher right now is teaching about Kanakamali resistance at the base of Mauna Kea, right? They have been camped out. Native Hawaiians have been camped out at the base of Mauna Kea for over three months fighting to protect their sacred mountain from the 30 meter telescope. And that's a contemporary issue. And through that issue, I think you can actually teach history. You can teach a lot of content through looking at a contemporary issue. So can you tell us about the, the next P in your framework? Yeah, so the next one is perspectives. And so this orientation invites educators to, instead of learning about Indigenous peoples, really learn from Indigenous peoples and, and Indigenous thought and Indigenous analyses. So I love this quote by the late Monacan poet Karen Wood. She says, nothing was discovered, everything was already loved. And just her perspective on discovery, I think, can really, it really complicates a core that's lovely. Anchor. It's lovely. And it's so simple. And yeah. so it, this quote reminds me that so much of social studies standards and curriculum is already embedded with a perspective. It's just the dominant perspective, right? A Eurocentric perspective. So it's often not visible to educators as an investment, right? So asking teachers to teach about exploration, about discovery, about expansion. This is one way of approaching curriculum, but the same could be said of, you know, we could invite teachers to teach about encroachment, about invasion, right? About everything that was loved before settler colonizers came to what's now called the United States. So perspectives is just a way for educators to think about how can you incorporate native thought, uh, native literature, native perspectives into curriculum. And for civic education, that can be really beneficial. So the peacemaking court on the Seneca Nation or the tribal, the peacegiving court in the Confederated Tribes of Kusla, Lower Umpqua, and Sayusla, these are legal and political traditions that really complicate the kind of punitive notions of justice that we have in our nation state. So how, 
how can indigenous perspectives complicate and advance different visions of peace and justice, for example? One little note I'll make is I really appreciate, I think, and I even, some of my, my teacher candidate mentioned how it's these little shifts in language that are also really helpful to them. We were talking, we're reading a book about Ona Judge who was enslaved by George Washington in our class. And they were talking about just the notion of her, of using the term that she was enslaved and saying it like that, as opposed to just calling her a slave and how that's a slight shift, but it also recenters that that is just, you know, part of the system with which she was, but also is not the defining characteristic just of her life, right? And so it allows us to talk about more of the complexity. And the way you often are very historical in saying the land that became Oregon, as an example of saying, you know, that this is an event, this is something that occurred through colonization over time. And I feel like you just speak that in your language. So even your language, I think, is very educational, can help people be more historically accurate in talking about these events. Well, thank you. That's very nice. And I've learned a lot of this from reading Indigenous Studies scholarship. So I did not grow up immersed in thinking about sovereignty and thinking about Native nationhood. And I did not just naturally have language that counters kind of the inherited colonial discourses that we all are often raised with. Like I learned this from reading Sandy Grande. I learned this from reading Dolores Calderon. And so being Native is not a prerequisite for having this kind of anti-colonial orientation toward curriculum and teaching. And there's so much scholarship available, and I'll try to put some books and stuff in the show notes so that people can spend some time reading from Indigenous Studies scholars who say stuff way better than I do and who are my mentors. Well, there's a specific book I want to ask you about. Before we get to that, though, you got to tell me about the re- the rest of these P's. There are I think, three P's. Because I think left. this is okay. really helpful. Can you can you walk us through those? And then we'll talk about a book that came out that I think is making a big difference already. Okay, so the next P is political sovereignty. And this orientation really shifts the focus away from culture, which is really the primary frame I have seen teachers use to to think and teach about indigenous peoples, often teaching about indigenous cultures, teaching about stories, teaching about cultural practices. So this shifts that cultural frame to asking teachers to think about political nationhood. That means the political relationship between indigenous nations in the United States or the political identities of that Native people have as citizens. And so if you have that shift, that political orientation, then that different, you have different sources that you would use to teach from. So every year, the National Congress of American Indians puts out a state of Indian nations. So I know that teachers are already teaching about the state of the union, right? How great would it be if they started thinking about the state of Indian nations as something that they could use as curriculum in their classroom? Um, Yeah, or there's an embassy of tribal nations that opened in 2009 in Washington, D.C. that really seeks to affirm the nation-to-nation relationship between the federal government and tribal nations in the U.S. So teachers could teach about that embassy of nations and what the goals of that movement and initiative are. So the next orientation is power. And by this, I mean two things. The first is really a call for educators to challenge power dynamics that that often surface in curriculum. And these are really colonial discourses and logics that these are really colonial discourses and logics that surface in curriculum that shouldn't just be balanced with another perspective, but that educators should really challenge. And so an example I give in the article is this Oregon Weekly Studies Reader. It's a fourth grade text that's widely used here in the state. And under the banner of American civics, 
you know, it talks about Father Junipero Serra, and it says, do you like to give speeches? Can you convince others to see things your way? Then maybe you have a gift for expressing yourself clearly. And then it goes on to detail some of Father Serra's work, which includes building and supervising missions in California. And then the reader says, many Indians died from overwork and diseases, but the missions kept going because of Father Serra's preaching and care. Father Serra used his clarity of expression for what he thought was good. And so this idea that that can just be complemented with an indigenous perspective is not enough to me. Teachers must really challenge the glorification of colonization. And of course, they can also complement it with indigenous perspective. So at the same time, the Pope was considering and eventually canonized Father Serra. You know, indigenous people in California were mounting, you know, very visible and public protests about that canonization. And so I hope that they were teaching about how Indigenous peoples in California felt about the potential canonization of Father Serra. But to me, those blatantly colonial and racist that was, assumptions in texts need to be challenged. That was fascinating. Like, it was always a throwaway line. And many, what is it, and many Indians worked hard and died. Like, really? Yeah. That's it? That's it. I, yeah. So that can't stand alone. So the other thing about power is this other meaning, which is that educators should really incorporate examples of indigenous resistance and efforts for social change, right? Indigenous creative power. And so that's so that Native people aren't just seen as victims of colonization, right? But that they're also seen as active and creative change makers in their communities. And there are so many examples of this that can be a source for curriculum and social studies. So, you know, the, the resistance and collective action at Standing Rock or what I just said now at Mount Achaia, like the small ways that indigenous peoples are like indigenous people's day, for example, Mm -hmm. that's a native led civic initiative. Right. And so that is an example of people holding their cities or their States accountable for their needs and priorities and aspirations. So I hope that that sort of that lens of power also means focusing on change makers. The discussion of like the dismissiveness, right, of that statement and that can happen that that people died and it's like some kind of passive thing reminds me we have I've used Howard Zinn's first chapter, um, Columbus Indians and Progress, which talks about like what that is. It's a justification of, pro- of what some people see as their progress, but that make in making that choice you are literally justifying colonization, the brutality, the murder, and in the case of that chapter, genocide. And, and for many indigenous peoples, at least, you know, genocide or attempts at genocide. And so that's really powerful that to, I mean, that should, we should all see that as immoral. Like those sentences should not like make it out of a textbook yet. So often they're like the last line of a paragraph that then goes on to the next section without explanation. Yeah, this eighth grade teacher in a local school district here in her textbook, I think it's History Alive, but it calls Pocahontas a willing and curious prisoner. It's like that line can't stand alone. A teacher really needs to challenge that. And that's a very recent text. Wow. Wow. Okay, so I think we're on our our last uh, P. Tell us how you finish off this framework. So this last part of the framework is a call for educators to foster partnerships with indigenous peoples or organizations or even nations. And by partnership, I don't just mean bringing in a native guest speaker, although that's an okay practice as long as the teacher has done what they they need to prepare the class for the students to engage with the guest speaker about their expertise, right? Not having the guest speaker have to field native 101 questions. 
But I also mean this bigger shift in, you know, working with communities, learning about local organizations, and even reaching out to tribal nations. A couple of teachers I was working with, they called the education department at the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and they had the education, and they had, you know, a tribal member who was in charge of curriculum Skype in with their fourth grade class. And that person talked all about their government, the initiatives that they're working on, They talked about a language app that the nation had created. You know, not every tribal nation has the capacity to do that, but it doesn't hurt to reach out to local organizations and communities. Well, it's a really powerful framework. And again, I think for me, you know, as I've been trying to learn about this, reading books like An Indigenous People's History of the United States and you know, I was just pulled off my shelf. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's other book, All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. Like those books, they they contain so much information that I think what I needed is something to help me think about how to put it in place. And I really feel like this framework has helped me to sit back and then take the knowledge that I've learned from all these sources and start to think about like even planning lessons by looking at these six Ps. And so I've already been really using it and thinking about it how when I do in indigenous lessons and talk about it. And I'm introducing it already to my students. It's something that I want them to be able to take in the field. So I think it's a really incredible work. And I know you said you're drawing on the wisdom of a lot of other people, but I think you're really creating a lot of new wisdom for our field by helping to translate so much into something that teachers can can make sense of and continue to work with as, the, as we all learn and grow. So thank you for that. It's really incredible. Uh, thank you for sharing how you're using it. I really appreciate it. Now, having said that, when we think about all the work you're doing, you did another big thing. I don't know how you you have enough time in the day, but you have a book out called Indigenous Children's Survivance in Public Schools. And can you tell us about this book? And um, we want to make sure everyone is not only aware of it, but has an opportunity to get a copy and, and buy it and, and read it and think about how they can play. What What's in this book that you wrote? So this is a book that emerged out of my dissertation research in a local community, and it's a series of what I call survivance stories. These are case studies that really attend to Native students' artfulness and resistance and resilience amidst kind of colonial practices that they're experiencing in schools. And so it's a series of stories that really try to bring theory to bear on practice, and to put teachers in relationship to the actual experiences of Native students navigating K-12 public schooling. The chapters address a variety of issues, many of which are related to social studies education. So the first chapter talks about Zeke, this second grade Native student who didn't like the curriculum that his teacher was teaching about pilgrims and Indians. And Zeke didn't like the pictures he saw about Indians, and he didn't like being called an Indian. So I think just showing, you know, writing that story of how a young kid, a seven-year-old can already, has already experienced kind of racism and colonialism and already has language to counter that is really important. It gives, I think, a sense of urgency for teachers to rethink at an early age what we're teaching our kids and who we're centering in our classroom. And I really like, you know, I, I took a storytelling approach because even though I shared this framework, I think frameworks can only do so much, like teaching and learning and living are such messy experiences and they're so complicated and figuring out how to navigate the messiness is challenging. And so for example, you know, teachers, one of the first questions I'm often asked 
even after I give a workshop is, okay, what do people like to be referred to? Native American, American Indian, you know, what's the, what's the best term? But in this story, Zeke, you know, he, his teacher asks him, class, what do you do when you have a problem? And Zeke raised his hand and he said, I fly high above my problems like an eagle. And the student next to him said, well, that's such an Indian thing to say. And Zeke told me he doesn't like the word Indian. He doesn't like how it makes him feel. He thinks Indian makes some people not look smart. But then later he said, you know, if she said that's such a Native American thing to say, that wouldn't make me feel better either. Right. So already a seven year old knows that there's much more involved than a word choice than than picking the right term. So the book just covers a series of stories. There's one on a native youth group that we organized and their efforts to speak back to spirit Halloween and their native costumes. Right. And it touches on the theme of cultural appropriation and native identity. There's one chapter in the book that talks about a young student who's really confident in her culture and an active participant in her culture, but she has light skin. And so even though she feels really confident in the Native Youth Center, she feels different in the classroom because people don't see her as Native. And so that, that's, that story also supports teachers in rethinking their social studies curriculum. So that unit talks about the Wax Museum Project. That's a pretty common elementary education autobiographical activity. And then one chapter really goes to work on the Native American unit, which is the really the primary way I have seen in my research that social studies teachers are incorporating Native people into social studies, particularly in elementary. Just so, one unit and one and done. One and done, right? So there's that. But then also Native people are objects of study in this unit. You know, people in this story, we get to see how a teacher you know, makes teepees and has students recreating dwellings. And it doesn't foster much awareness about contemporary Native people, Mm -hmm. about Native rights, right? It actually reproduces little anthropologists, right? Mm -hmm. Students learn how to kind of study this exotic and foreign other rather than feel connected to Native people and feel invested in their well-being and future, right? Mm -hmm. That's That's what I think the goal of social studies education would be in part but this unit does something different. So I try to tell each chapter tells a story of a unit, but of course tries to read teachers, you know, generously because teachers have a lot on their plates, but also critically, right? What else could be done in this scenario? So I try to complicate practices I saw, but then also infuse them with alternatives in a story format. That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, I'm super excited. It's on my, it's on my list. If I can, you know, get out of the the middle of the semester readings oh, and things. I know, I know it's right now I'm not doing any pleasure reading, but this is really on one of the top books on my short list. And um, I'm so excited to read it. And I'm so glad that you wrote it. And, you know, I think this is, uh, you made a good point that of course the the framework, the, the six P's that we went over is not going to be enough unless you kind of engage, again, continually engage in this. This book can be part of that engagement um, of thinking through those different concepts. So again, thank you for, for, for all of these contributions to the field. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. We, we absolutely <laughs> appreciate it. And whenever you want to come on, just, you know, say the word and we'll have you back. I'm a friend of the pod now. Yeah, I know. That's right. I know. We can't. I, right. I always forget what the, when you come on the third episode what that is. 
right? I think I think you're just a a, a living guest a in super, the pod, right? yeah, or a co you're squatting co owner co owner of the pod. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be a squatter, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> oh no, no, you no, you're a welcomed guest, esteemed guest. Uh, well, so thank you too. Thank you. Now, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I'll send a link to our university website. So I have a list of my current research projects and some of my publications on there. And then I'm also on Twitter at Leilani Sabs. Fantastic. And again, thank you so much for, for all this work. Um, everyone, make sure to check the, the show notes and then to tweet at Leilani, all the ways that you're using the framework and her work in your classroom. I'm sure she would love to hear that. So again, thank you again for joining. Thank you. Okay. At the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about cheering and learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and really you do, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and in that space, which names I forget. <laughs> oh, of course. If you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or we'll come to your house. You can just search Visions of Ed at this point and like episodes will, will come up, right? And you can listen to and some, so of, some, of the, some of the browsers have changed things. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Uh, five-star reviews help people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.